Hello and welcome to Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore and Tokyo. Welcome everybody. Today we have a very special guest joining us from London. Welcome Valentina Pavel. So Valentina is a legal researcher at the Ada Lovelace Institute in the UK, which is quite new, and she's currently researching the EU's digital strategy and working on a project called Rethinking Data Governance in the EU. So the humanitarian and development sectors have been working on improving data sharing and transparency. It'll be great to hear more about the EU's digital strategy, how it's going, especially now as a result of the COVID crisis and your thoughts on data governments. So before we dive into your work, Valentina, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about the Ada Lovelace Institute? What's its mission and what's it focusing on lately? Hello, everybody, and it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Valentina Pavel, and I'm a researcher at the Ada Lovelace Institute, an independent UK-based research and deliberative body with a remit to ensure that data and AI work for people and society. And what that means is that we gather evidence about the social and ethical impacts of data and new technologies such as artificial intelligence. That's massive. And you've been working on a very timely project looking at the data governance ecosystem. I think it's called Rethinking Data. Do you want to expand on, on what that is? And just tell us what got you intrigued by this? What's your story? Let's hear more about you. That would be nice. And then we can dive into a Rethinking Data. I'd like to hear more about you, Valentina. That's right. I'm currently working on a project called Rethinking Data, which is designed to understand how we can change the data governance ecosystem to tackle asymmetries of power, surface the contribution data can make to society and strengthen data rights and regulation to empower individuals and collectives. I have a legal background and I'm passionate about the intersection between law and technology. Before joining the Ada Lovelace Institute, I worked on digital rights policy and advocacy, focusing on privacy, data protection, and freedom of expression with the digital rights NGO called Apti Romania, the Association for Technology and Internet, which is part of a network of 42 organizations present in Brussels as European digital rights. And last year, I was a Mozilla Fellow with Privacy International, where I focused on data governance and looked at different proposals, such as attaching property rights to data or different monetization models, such as seeing data as the labor we produce and being compensated for it. This led me to, to create a, a project called Our Data Future where I explored four speculative scenarios about how the world might look like, depending on the way we choose to govern our relationship with data. One of these scenarios um, I imagined is around national data funds, where citizens and governments together own the data that is being generated by sensors and by services people use. So. This made me make a connection to the EU data strategy that the European Commission proposed in February. 
Um, and it seems like the European Commission tends to go towards a vision along similar lines because it wants to create a genuine single market for data with interconnected data spaces. Although the, the term is, is quite ambiguous, it might uh, represent common pools of data from different sectors such as health, mobility, agriculture data, data generated by machines. So what these common pools of data are doing is mixing together all types of data, personal, sensitive, non-personal. And from my point of view, this is going to be a major challenge in terms of how to govern how to govern data and how to create the right architectures in order to, to succeed with such an ambitious vision. Well, it sounds like something you might see in a film or a TV series. <laughs> I just watched season three of Westworld and you got this big all-knowing data center at the center of it and who owns that and and yeah that's so fascinating and what got you thinking about all this it's it's absolutely amazing to be honest you really hit the spot with the season three of westworld because this is exactly the scenario that worried about going further and my question to everybody listening to this podcast is how do they see the future in 10 years from now how should data policy and data regulation look like and what can we do about it? Great questions. So can you just maybe walk us through from what you were doing there and, and then connecting to this fairly recent 2018 I saw the Institute for Ada Lovelace um, was formed and what a fascinating lady. She sounds amazing as well. What drew you to that role? and tell us more about the Institute. So at the Ada Lovelace Institute for the last few months, we've been examining the technical, ethical, legal, and societal questions around the use of digital contact tracing apps. We've been monitoring closely how apps are being developed worldwide. And we just launched a digital contact tracing tracker under the umbrella of our public uh, health systems project. And during the early stages of the pandemic, we released a rapid evidence review called Exit Through the App Store, analyzing implications around contact tracing apps and immunity certificates. And we also ran public deliberations that surfaced the public's views on COVID technologies. Um, the full public deliberation uh, report is available on our website at adalovelaceinstitute.org. But one of the key lessons we learned from these conversations was that trust isn't just about data or privacy. In order to be trusted, technologies need to be effective. It need, they need to be uh, purposeful, necessary and proportionate, and they need to be seen as to solve the problem they are seeking to, to address. So I think we are in a very important moment of reflection right now. What the pandemic has shown us is that we need to fundamentally rethink systems that uh, govern our world and create better infrastructures. For example, some questions that um, I'm curious and very interested about how are international data sharing agreements uh, what was the role of international data sharing agreements? Did they work? Did they not work? 
How do we build global health infrastructures that can help us prevent future pandemics and crises? Were there problems with accessing certain types of data? Did this work? Um, were there blockers to it? And uh, what were the reasons for, for these blockers? And since my my background is in law, I'm very interested to see whether our current legal frameworks were an enabler or if they were a blocker in for us to, to deal with this crisis. And what did you find? It, it sounds like it's really hard to sync it all up, you know, and it's just so fast everything that's happening and what did you did you figure out what was your roadmap what was your process um and the benefits you found you you're taught what an opportunity to land at this time with this COVID-19 you know pandemic my gosh it's um it's a crisis that's helping so much pivot what's been positive and interesting so the questions that I mentioned feed in uh, the project that I'm currently working on, the Rethinking Data project, because we're approaching this program from three different streams. We want to see how narratives and the way we frame conversations around data are transforming our perception about what is acceptable and what is not in relationship to data. We're looking to see how we can develop uh, people-centered data practices and what are the current gaps and challenges in the legislative systems. And more importantly, how can we develop a future vision for data regulation and what's the world we want to see in 10, 50 years from now? And there's so much to digest, I, I can imagine. You, you're quite new. You started in January, didn't you? And it's now, what, July? Gosh, how did you experience all this? Like, what's the past six months looked like? Past six months were literally a roller coaster. I had a, a certain idea about uh, the project that I was joining, but from month to month, everything was was changing around me. So it was, and it really is a, a challenging project, but one that I'm very excited about. And I think it's a blessing that we have both the, the opportunity to learn from the current crisis, but also more importantly, we're super privileged that we can be proactive and actually build a vision to drive us forward. And I think few organizations can actually have the capacity and re the resources to do that. Wow, what a time. So I hear that the Institute's launching new work around public health identity systems and public perspective on COVID tech. Would you like to tell us about this? These would be the reports I just mentioned. And we, re we really focus on engaging the public on, on, on questions around COVID technologies and uh, what are the, the implications that come out of this. And it was very interesting to, to observe the power of big corporations in defining the solutions and deciding what technology can be built and what technology cannot. We've been discussing this with, with a, a, a larger representative audience in the UK and we had lessons uh, learned from, from this process. 
but it is still an ongoing and very much exploratory process that we're still engaged in. Can you think of any benefits like to the tech around COVID-19? What's in it for humanity? That's a very tricky question because there are so many tensions if you uh, start looking at it. On one hand side, what we saw um, with the coronavirus crisis is that, for example, epidemiologists advocated for a centralized approach to digital contact tracing apps, while civil society and the larger public um, expressed privacy concerns and was more in favor of a decentralized model. So there is there was a big role on on following the scientific advice and following um, epidemiologists, which of course need, need data in order to produce models and to inform decision-making. But it showed how complex such decision-making processes are, especially when you're dealing with time pressures and uh, the need to, to react fast. Indeed. I think, you know, how do you simplify and how do you make it, you mentioned the trust and, you know, just the application of things, making it very transparent in a way. Um, and, and maybe we're all drowning in too much information. So we, we can't pay attention to what's really, you know, what's the elephant in the room that we need to be paying attention to. But um, how did the Rethinking Data Project come about? What, what are we rethinking? Or what are you rethinking? Sorry. So to be honest, I wasn't there when um, the Rethinking Data program was fleshed out, but it is one of the Ada Lovelace Institute's flagship projects. And the reason is that we think we're in a place where we need to rethink data, its use, its language, its purpose, value, and, and its governance. And to go a little bit deeper into the three strands of work for this project on narratives, practices, and regulation. On narratives around data, such as saying data is the new oil or data is radioactive waste, we see these framings as important because they influence the way we think about data. They um, get translated into data practices and they find their way into policy and, and regulation. And many current narratives are framed around resource extraction and market value of data, but we need to make sure that data works for people and society, and we need to change these narratives and put public interest back at the core. So we're also looking at data sharing and data access models to understand how would a best practice model look like uh, we've gathered a list of around 100 data sharing architectures with data trusts, data commons, uh, and collaboratives in Europe. We want to identify the conditions that enable data access and data sharing architectures to create wider public interest outcomes and uh, rethink data practices in ways that tackle asymmetries of power, give people more agency and control over their data, and see uh, how data is, is governed in the in the interests of people and society and on the last work stream on regulations which is actually my my core focus at ada 
we're looking at limitations and missing elements in the current data legislation. We're analyzing new technological trends and we're thinking what are the changes we want to see and how should future regulation look like. And the key questions that I'm concerned about is tackling asymmetries of power, how to strengthen data rights and how to make sure we empower both individuals and collectives. And that's one side of it. And then it's also individual responsibility and awareness. And, you know, there's so much to bridge. And, yeah, no, I like that it's coming from the place of, of academia at the moment. But as it seeps into everywhere else, I think we definitely need to be thinking about the, the messages you've mentioned around the EU digital strategy was there something there you wanted to talk about, the EU data strategy and AI white paper? Was that something you'd like to expand on? Yes, it would be great to say a few words about the digital um, strategy. And I mentioned earlier that vision is to create a genuine single market for data with interconnected data spaces. And while we're not completely sure what these data spaces are and how they, they look like, whether they are based on data portability and uh, interoperability between uh, systems, or whether they're big buckets of data managed by the European Commission. Um, this is not completely clear what shape and form they can take. But one of the first major questions that came out for me from reading the EU data, data strategy was around this tension between different types of data regimes, because these data spaces contain a, a wide array of data from um, health, mobility, agriculture data, machine generated data. So we're basically putting all this, th this entire spectrum of data in one big pool. And we imagine that this is supposed to magically work out. But the fact is that we have different regimes governing personal data, non-personal data, and open data in the European Union. So governing these different regimes does not come without major challenges, and it's not going to be a straightforward process. We have very blurry lines between what is personal and what is non-personal data. And we're not in the place where we can simply say, let's just rely on anonymization techniques in order to, to protect individuals, because we know anonymization techniques are underdeveloped. And even from anonymized data sets, you can still re-identify individuals and, and create harms. And um, the second big question uh, was the fact that the strategy seems on data availability as the panacea for all societal problems and for better decision making. And it, to quote their terms, data is the key to more prosperous and more sustainable societies. However, having more data does not in itself guarantee better decision making. We should also look at the quality of data which needs to be supported from at least three different axes, quality of information, quality of process, and quality of governments. If we don't have at least three, these three elements uh, together, then it doesn't look like 
we're building the right architectures for this vision. So, Valentina, are you now describing our data future and the four scenarios? Is that something that connects to the strategy? I was describing the vision in the EU uh, data strategy document, but it is true that uh, I find some similarities to the project I worked on last year as a Mozilla Fellow, where I developed four speculative scenarios about how the future might look like. And one of these scenarios was talking about national data funds where both uh, citizens and, and governments own data and companies can access this data either via some subscription models or one-off contractual agreements. Um, property. How are you viewing data as property? I have the same question because if you start thinking of it, you would need to... First of all, I suppose you would need to uh, categorize the different types of data in order to see what data you can own and what data you can't or shouldn't um, be owned by, by anybody. So this in itself is, is a major prob problem. But on a more high-level argument would be the fact that the notion of ownership is incompatible with data because Data can be copied and, and multiplied without any, um, any difficulties, while property rights means you, you apply a certain barrier or a certain fence around it, and yeah. this is simply not possible with data. Unless you can give it human rights somehow, that would be interesting legally. Gosh, data with human rights. If you can even show 1% of human rights there. We do have data rights with the um, General Data Protection Regulation, which offers you the possibility to access your data, to modify it, to correct it, to, uh, to delete it altogether, and also to, to move it from, from place to place. So this is the right to, to data portability. Um, and frameworks around the world have... Um, have taken this model and, and have have adopted this model as well. But I don't think property rights per se should be included in this array of data rights because data is relational. It, it tells things not only about myself, but uh, also about my, my surroundings, about people around me. So it can't be owned by, by a single individual. And... It's also not true that it will create more protection for, for individuals in, in relationship to, to big technological companies. Quite the opposite. When you sell data as property, it's an on-off on transaction and it means you, you, can't, you can't take it back. So once you renounce your, your rights, uh, companies will, will be able to do whatever they want with data. It's a bit slippery because it's got to do with identity as well. It, it's a big one. Gosh, 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 gosh. Anyway, what an interesting time. I'm a strong believer in the right to anonymity. I wouldn't want to live in a future where a code or a hashtag would, would represent the sum of what I am. 
I wonder if there are other disciplines that are doing something that manage lots of data. Like I remember when I was working with language, for example, and we had a corpus at Cambridge and it was the biggest in the world spoken and written language at the time. This is way back in 2002. And um, that used to be called a corpus. So I don't know. This is a corpus. Data is a corpus, isn't it? It's, it's not used just for academia. But what was interesting there is something was born called the EU framework for language. And we started something called Languages Open Doors. And that was centralised probably through Cambridge, actually. And then it made it through to policy for education. And then it ended up that kids got two languages by the age of seven, their mother tongue and English, and then a third language by the age of 12. And that's why all of Europe has three languages. So that was all because of that project. So I'm just wondering if there's any kind of connection. The benefit there was communication. So what's the overlying benefit here with data? It's just phenomenal. Like Brent, your vision of ask your digital assistant anything. And really, it is definitely a lot of benefit there. Yeah. What should we be cautious about, maybe? What outweighs what? What are the benefits? I think it's really important to, to focus on benefit. I'm really very hopeful. And I take the, the worst world scenario as my guiding not to end up like that dystopian but very very possible that's right exactly too possible from from my point of view but with this question of centralizing data or uh, optimizing for more decentralized models i think it's important to also highlight some of the advances in the ai field which are looking towards more privacy preserving processes building more privacy-focused AI and um, really trying to, to get the best value possible from these systems without interfering with fundamental rights and without stepping the line. There's a continuous trend towards making systems based on as little data as possible. And if we think about synthetic data, for example, this can either be seen as a very interesting um, privacy-enhancing technologies or a very or, or a very dangerous ones, or a very dangerous one because so on on the one hand side we will be able to run systems based on synthetic data on on data that is made up but that follows the same characteristics as a normal data set. So from this point of view we can say that maybe this offers some protections because you don't need to be so extractive and rely so much on, on real data sets. But at the same time, it can be very dangerous and, and very tricky because you can run and multiply it unlimited. So there won't be any restrictions or any barriers anymore with respect to what kind of data you can use and for, for what reasons, because you don't rely on original and real data sets. So should we go back to the um, what we were talking about earlier about COVID-19 and 
maybe public health identity systems and public perspective on COVID tech. Who's getting it right? You know, like I look at my, I'm from Australia, my hometown has just got it so right. It's in Adelaide and, and New Zealand, places, what did they do differently? Did they use technology? What are you finding from the data you're exposed to? What can you share? Be really good to hear everything you know that you can share around that. Yeah, I'm sorry to disappoint you on that, but that's still a very exploratory process for us. Um, and I'm not directly involved in public identity health systems. But I did want to come back on on the AI discussion because in February, when the European Commission released its, its data strategy, it also published a um, white paper on AI, which kind of laid the foundations for regulating AI. And the approach there is to, to go for a risk-based approach to govern AI and to focus on applications that are high risk for areas such as healthcare. And um, we, we submitted our reply to this European Commission public consultation underlying the fact that high risk cannot be the sole determinant of new regulation because this too tired dis distinction between high risk and low risk is very unhelpful and has significant limitations. For example, it doesn't leave room for incompatible uses of AI and it's regulating low risk as no risk at all, which is in some cases this, this might be very damaging. So we would suggest to prioritize purpose over promotion of AI, especially in the public sector, and first seek to articulate what is the specific purpose, if those measures are proportionate and necessary. And that message is loud and clear. I think we got that from previous interviews as well, especially in the humanitarian sector, which is just so, so protective of, of its data. So... Can you talk a little bit more about the Institute? Like, what do you know that we won't get from looking up the website? We're quite a young organization still. So far, we've been focusing a lot on COVID and where with the Rethinking Data Project, we want to go deeper into what it is exactly that we can change about the data governance ecosystem and what are the ways in which to to do that? I'd like to to encourage uh, listeners to check our Twitter feed for updates and and to sign up to to our newsletter where we share summaries and lessons learned from our events on on public health identity systems and uh, discussions around COVID technologies. And we're aiming to launch a, a blog series on questions around the Rethinking Data projects, such as platforms and data, how we can strengthen exi existing regulation, and what can we do in order to, to empower individuals and, and collectives. So this series of blog posts is in the making, and it'd be great if you could follow us on Twitter at Ada Lovelace Inst. I personally love the connection to Ada Lovelace and I did a bit of research on her. Were you drawn to her? 
going to work for the Institute with her name. And do you want to talk a little bit about her and what a woman, what an inspiring time it must have been. And the daughter of Lord Byron, I had no idea. It's quite interesting that this institute sprung up in 2018 and is one of its kind of missions to bring about a more diverse and more um, open sort of bias for AI and look at data from different points of view. I was indeed drawn by the name of Ada Lovelace and um, reading a little bit about the history, of course, I was very impressed and quite proud to to conduct work um, under this name. Um, and it's, it's a great opportunity that in 2020, we're able to, to carry on the values that she started her work and to put more focus on, on diversity, inclusion, solidarity, and public interest. Well, well done. Congratulations. It's great. You've joined at such an early stage and you're talking to us. So that's really, really great that you, you know, you, you're taking time to share your new steps at the Institute. And is there anything our audience who is quite, it started off with mostly data scientists, but it's growing and it's expanded. And I think we've got about, about 1500 members around the globe now. So is there anything you, know, you want to share with them about possible needs or, you know, what, what questions would you ask them or any advice you would give them because they can do lots of things? I guess it's becoming more and more clear that data has become the basis of decision-making. And I think we need to be very careful about that. Um, the humanitarian community and data scientists should, I, I would like them to step up and, and say what data is needed, what should be the quality of data, um, how do we design the, the relevance and specificities of certain data sets in, in order to really truly inform decision-making processes. So I'd like to encourage them not to shy away from policy-making and from decision-making processes because they are the experts and they can contribute immensely to, to these discussions. All right. Well, I hope our listeners are thinking about what you're saying and find it's cool for them to think about policy. So, um, no, I, I find it, I personally geek out on this. So it, it's actually really super, super interesting. And your background coming from a legal perspective, how are you viewing the data world? Complicated. <laughs> That's probably one of my one of the most succinct answers I can, I can give. Um, any takeaways you'd like to share? Uh, we've talked about COVID. We've talked about EU digital strategy and AI white paper. Your rethinking data project, different narratives, changing narratives. What else would you like to sort of flag up and have as a takeaway? today any events anything you need that you want to mention we're planning a panel discussion uh, during uh, rightscon which is uh, one of the leading events on digital rights 
I'm going to host a session on data ownership to explore concepts of property rights for data, monetization models for data. And it'd be great to, to have you during the last week of July with us to tune in to this discussion and, and contribute with your experience from global context. And as I mentioned, we're, we're launching a series of blog posts on uh, issues around platforms and data, digital infrastructures, um, strengthening regulation and empowering individuals and, and collectives. And uh, we're always happy to, to receive written contributions that we can uh, publish on our website around these themes in order to um, enlarge the debate and, and hear different perspectives. Oh, that's great. So call to action there, everybody. So how would they submit anything and how can they follow your event as well? Do you mind just giving that information? Go onto your website. What's the way? For written contributions, we would be happy to open up a discussion at uh, hello at uh, adalovelaceinstitute.org. And we'll soon announce the exact date and, and time for the panel discussion on data ownership. That's going to, to be updated on Twitter as soon as we hear back from the organizers. And uh, we're going to publish on our website uh, more details about this session. I guess my last message would be that AI cannot happen just for its own sake. We need to be very responsible and very deliberate about it, especially in the public sector. And we must make, we need to make sure that it benefits the sector that it serves. So no recklessness around AI is, is allowed. No recklessness. Yeah. And that's relative. Maybe we need some like road safety rules to go in place or I don't know. It's going to be an interesting space. It's, it's a new one. It's exciting to have pioneers like you in this landscape and hopefully we can have you back, you know, with new insights. But for now, thank you so much, Valentina, for sharing your insights. And that brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close.